I thank the Lord to begin as a testimony for the time we've had in this book. It has been a great challenge for me to work through it, um, but I hope that uh, you have gleaned some things as well from it. Uh, but I want to encourage you that you need the book of Ecclesiastes, and I want to start off with four reasons, uh, not in your sheet here, okay? So... Four reasons why you need this book. The first reason is John 17, 17. Jesus prayed that uh, the Lord would sanctify the saints through the scriptures. You need God's word to make you more like Jesus Christ. And this is part of his word, and you need it. A second reason is that you have sin and limitations. We're going to be reminded of that today. Because of your sin, because of your limitations, you will never, on your own, ever be able to put everything in life together. You need God to tell you this, and that's what he does in this book. How we should live and what life's about. A fourth reason. You need to enjoy the life that God gives yeah, there's problems and yeah, there's challenges. But who created this world? Who causes the, praise the Lord, sun to shine right now and the rain to fall like we had last week? The Lord does. And you need to enjoy that. One last reason, and I'm sure there could be many others, is that you need to be faithful in all the roles and responsibilities that you have in life. You need to be faithful in all the roles and responsibilities that you have in life. You need the book of Ecclesiastes. But as we have uh, found out, if you didn't know it already, Ecclesiastes is not like one of Paul's letters in the sense of, well, Paul usually begins with doctrine and teaching and then builds on that with, well, this is how you need to live in light of that. But even as Peter said, not all of Paul's letters are really easy either. But at least Paul's way of thinking wasn't a whole lot different from ours. When, if we were to compare uh, books of the Bible to maybe homes or buildings, um, we could describe like Paul's letters as having that foundation. And on that foundation are different levels to the home with different rooms. There's, there's orderliness to it. Um, Ecclesiastes reminds me of hospitals or airports that I have been in. You wind your way through and, oh no, where am I? Uh, I'm lost. <laughs> um, I have never been to the Pentagon, but it was built in the 1940s during World War II. And on August 17, 1942, the Washington Post put a joke in there about the Pentagon. It said, have you heard about this one? A War Department messenger got lost in the Pentagon and came out a lieutenant colonel. In other words, he had been there so long uh, to find his way out. And there have been stories since then of Eisenhower, Bush, um, Dick Cheney. They went to go to some place, got completely lost, but they didn't want to make themselves look bad. So they made it look like they knew where they were going. After a few hours, they asked for directions and, oh, it's right down there. Uh, just kind of an embarrassing thing. In fact, Eisenhower said that the Pentagon was apparently designed to confuse any enemy who might infiltrate it. And so 
As far as a review or a summary of Ecclesiastes, I am not going to walk through an organized, detailed outline of the book. Y'all remember how I describe most of the books on my shelf as my friends. And what's been interesting as I work through those friends, three or four or five of them in the book of Ecclesiastes, is none of them agree on the structure of the book of Ecclesiastes. And I'm not going to pretend that I know the truth there. Instead, what I'm going to do is uh, to help you get the main points, the basic gist of this, well, frustratingly enigmatic book. I'm going to adapt a format that I think everyone is familiar with here, that of FAQs or frequently asked questions. And that's why I titled the message today, not the facts of life. It might be tempted to uh, call it that as short, but the, an FAQ is a frequently asked question. Sometimes you go to a website and you want to learn more. And so you'll click on the FAQ and it brings you to a page that has a, a question and then you click on it and it gives you answers. And so that's the form that I've adopted here. And as we work through, as we finish working through Ecclesiastes, I, I hope and I pray that you're not frustrated by a challenging book. And I hope that if you are frustrated, that you won't abandon it, never to turn to it again. My prayer is that as we work through this and as you have worked through this, you will have greater awe, wonder, amazement, and praise for the Lord and his greatness. There is a God in heaven, and we are not him. And I also pray that this will help you to uh, work through the book so that you will glorify him and, learn much, and, and be better equipped to serve him. So, the first frequently asked question that Ecclesiastes answers, number one, if you're following along there, is what characterizes life? What characterizes life? Several things here. Number one, there are regular aspects of life. There are regular aspects of life. And under each of these, I give some points. We're not going to really turn to these. But what are some of those regular aspects of life? Well, you work. You have a job. You have an employment. Or if you're retired, you have other kinds of work that you're doing. Generations come and go. Life has cycles, and everything repeats itself. Remember that from chapter 3? Uh, there's a time to live and a time to die, a time to weep and a time to mourn. There's cycles to life, and it repeats itself. And then there's nothing new in history. Most of life is the same old, same old. It's routine. It's day-to-day -day humdrum. My theology teacher in seminary, we jokingly would say that he knew his onions when it came to theology. He was extremely humble, uh, knowledgeable. He would bend over backwards to help you understand something. But what I also appreciate about Dr. McCune is he would put things in a way that we could understand, usually. That comes after decades of teaching. So he would often use farm analogies and illustrations, and I'd be chuckling in my chair and look at my city slicker, 
seminary students, and they'd be like, what is he talking about? One time, Dr. McCune told us zealous seminary students, seminary students usually are like, we can't wait to get going and serve the Lord. We have grandiose plans. And one day, Dr. McCune said something along the lines of the fact that, you know what? Most of life is humdrum, routine. It's not flashy. It's not exciting. You know, 20-year-olds don't want to hear that. 20-year-olds want to be talking about conquering the world, you know, this sort of thing. But I'm glad he told us that. That was part of the education, is not just learning head knowledge, but applying it to life. There are regular aspects to life. Number two, there are enjoyable aspects of life. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes, what kind of enjoyable aspects of life? Well, you can be successful. You can be really smart. You can enjoy things and have a good time. You can be silly. Now, there's a proper time and place for silliness. And there's a time when you shouldn't be silly. If you know me, most of you do, I can be silly. You can use the things of the world to make your body feel really good. I struggled with how to word that, but, you know... I like my coffee in the morning, unadulterated black, and it tastes good. I take that first sip, and they go, ah, my grandkids have learned that. My kids have learned that. That's how you respond to your good first sip of coffee. It makes my body feel good. You can do different construction projects. And if you're good at those construction projects whatever that might be, maybe cooking or actual construction projects, and you look back at that, isn't there a sense of satisfaction of a job well done? And you pat yourself on the back. You can accumulate lots of things, including money. You can gain much from your hard work and labor. Why do these things happen? Because God is gracious and he is merciful. He has cursed the ground, because of sin. But yet, what does he cause to shine on the just and the unjust? What does he cause to fall on both? His sun and the rain. He gives food for us to eat. He causes, enables us to have clothes on our back, a roof over our head. And this isn't just in Ecclesiastes. This is in the New Testament as well. 1 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul says he talks about how we have foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Every creature of God is good. Nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. I don't know about you, but since God created lasagna, I am thankful for it and I enjoy it. Now you might say, well, God didn't create lasagna. Your wife creates lasagna. God created the aspects that would become lasagna. He gave your, my wife the wisdom to make it, didn't he? I am going to rejoice in it and be thankful for it. There are enjoyable things in life. So you can probably figure out what number three is going to be. There are difficult aspects of life. Solomon teaches us, has taught us many times, that there are difficult aspects of life. Life is hard. There is much injustice. There is oppression. 
There's corruption in government. Remember when we worked through that? We didn't need to be convinced. We don't need to be convinced of that, do we? The more you own, the more problems you can have. The more you own, the greater worries you can have. I mean, think about our own church building here. When we were at the Windsor Community Center, were we concerned about the security of the building? Nope. Whatever happens there, that's not our problem. But when our shed was broken into, suddenly, what's on the forefront? What are we? Oh, no, we're starting to not worry, but we need to think about those things. You can quickly lose everything in a disaster. People forget how wicked others were. Past tense there because it talks about somebody who died and they just completely forget how wicked they were. Wrongdoing goes unpunished, encouraging more wrongdoing. People don't get what they deserve. Unpredictable things happen to everyone. And then, this is from the Hebrew, one knucklehead can ruin a really good thing. Why is life so difficult? Why are these difficult? Why are there these difficult things? What is it? What's the reason in one word? It's sin, isn't it? It is sin. And because of sin, what did God do to the ground? He cursed it. So now what grows up? Thorns. We live in a sin-cursed world. A fourth characteristic of this life is that there are different kinds of people. Solomon has showed us how there are different kinds of people in this life. And answering this first frequently asked question of what characterizes life. Different kinds of people. There are wise and foolish people. Some people are envious and jealous of what others have. Some are lazy, do nothing, and they ruin themselves. Some people are wise, work hard, and are content. Some people live for themselves as workaholics. Some people are fickle. You can never do something that will please them. Some never have enough, and some are hoarders. You know, TV series and shows have been made on all these different things. <laughs> the wise are those who have turned from their sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. They fear the Lord. The foolish are unbelievers. By and large, that's how these two expressions are used in the Old Testament. And this is seen in daily life. The reason for problems that we experience everywhere is not because of some wrong law, not because it's necessarily a bad government, not because of the need to distribute wealth evenly or social injustice problems. The problem is because of sin in our hearts. And then number five, there's death. There is death. One last characteristic of life. Both the wise and the foolish will die. Ultimately, everyone is forgotten. Remember that when we worked through that? That was that. Here's a really encouraging message for you today. Everyone here is going to die. Let's pray. It's true. Everything you earn in life is left to someone else after you die. And you have no idea what they're going to do with it. 
what their character will be. You can do your best, but all the living will die. No one on his own can learn what happens after death. They have guesses, but no one on his own. God alone tells us that. Everyone is going to die. Death is sudden and unpredictable. He says there, it falls suddenly. Difficult times will come leading to death, and then death crushes life. It's brutal and final. Remember that portion there in chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, the the, the golden bowl breaks, the silver cord is broken, the, the glitter and the, the great things of life. It's so fragile, it's quickly crushed, broken. Why is this? Is this so? Remember Genesis 5? So-and-so lived so many years, and he, what? Died. Remember Genesis 6, or Romans 6, verse 23? The wages of sin is death. Or Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. Life has so many different aspects, so many different facets. And then that brings us to the the second FAQ, or frequently asked question about life. When one tries to make sense of life, what's his conclusion? Somebody tries to make sense of life, what's his conclusion? Solomon several times, number one, uses a word uh, to describe seeking that out. It's this word sometimes translated profit or advantage. Solomon did this. He weighed the different situations and he wondered, what is the ultimate good, ultimate purpose? What's the point? What's the profit? What's the advantage? And his labor under the sun. Solomon's conclusion, number two, is that from a human standpoint, when you try to grasp life's meaning and purpose, the first thing that characterizes your attempt when you do it all on your own, it's more than you can wrap your head around. It's more than you can wrap your head around. It is a bigger puzzle than you can solve with your own mind. It's perplexing. It's inexplicable. You can't put everything together. A second aspect of his conclusion is that it is frustrating. It's frustrating. It's aggravating, maddening, exasperating. It's disturbing. And so it's kind of, number three, kind of like catching, trying to catch the wind. Trying to catch the wind. Parents, if you need, if you have some little kids and you need some quiet time, uh, Tell your kids, I want you to go catch some wind and bring it back to me. It'll keep them busy for quite a while. Try to catch the wind. Wait. If they're smart, they're going to get a jar. Do it that way, right? This is Solomon's point, but the word that he uses uh, comes up a lot in the book of Ecclesiastes that our English translations put in the word Vanity. It's inexplicable. It's more than what you can wrap your head around. It's frustrating. You can never get to the bottom of it. It's impossible to do on your own. It's like trying to catch the wind. Solomon, by using this word, is not saying that life isn't worth living. 
He's speaking from a human standpoint. When you, by yourself, try to make sense of everything, you can't wrap your head around it. You will be frustrated. It's an impossible puzzle. And you might think, well, the more I learn about life, I'll be able to make sense of it. You have your Bibles open there to chapter 1. Listen to what he says in verse 14. Ecclesiastes 1.14. He says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. Indeed, it is an impossible thing to put together. It's a vanity. It's a frustrating mystery. It's like grasping for the wind. And also in chapter 2 and verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. Very similar to chapter 1, verse 14. I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I toiled. Indeed, it was vanity, grasping for wind. There was no profit. There's our key word that we're looking at here under the sun. You can think that you have some things figured out. And then you see something bad happen or something you didn't anticipate. And it causes you to take your good idea and throw it right in the garbage can. Some illustrations from Ecclesiastes, chapter 2 and verse 21. Chapter 2 and verse 21, Solomon says, There was a man whose labors with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This is vanity. It's a disturbing thing, a great evil. So here you have someone who works hard, and then he suddenly dies, and he leaves it to someone else who didn't lift a finger for it. This makes no sense. The guy who worked for it, he didn't seemingly get to enjoy the fruits of his labor. A second example, chapter 2 and verse 23. All his days are sorrowful, his work burdensome. Even in the night, his heart takes no rest. You have a hard worker who even when he sleeps. And why do we go to sleep? This is one of those duh questions, right? We go to sleep to gain strength for our bodies. But this kind of a hard worker, even when he goes to sleep, he can't stop thinking and dreaming about his work. Consequently, he doesn't get rest. This makes no sense. A third example, chapter 5 and verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also, it's an impossible thing to grasp. Here you have somebody who wants to get rich. And when they finally do get rich, are they content with it? What do they want? More. Always wanting more. This makes no sense. What in the world's going on here? A fourth example, chapter 8 and verse 14. Chapter 8, verse 14. There is a vanity, something impossible to grasp, which occurs under the earth, on the earth, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Good people experience bad things, but yet bad people experience good things, this makes no sense. And then chapter 11 and verse 8, a fifth and last example. A fifth, uh, chapter 11, verse 8. 
If a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All that's coming is vanity. Someone lives a long life. They enjoy life. But what do they got to remember? They're going to die. Wait. I don't get it. This makes no sense. From these types of statements, too many conclude, and some of them are on my shelf, too many conclude that Ecclesiastes, it's a, a negative book written by Mr. Donnie Downer. It's a guy who wrote it, so he's not Debbie Downer. He's Donnie Downer. He's a guy who just sees nothing good in the world, and life is just negative, and he kind of slips in the last two verses to make it sound good. And, well, you know what? Maybe he didn't. It was just a, it was a different guy, an, an editor who wrote that. No, that's not the case. Solomon is clear. He walks through the exciting good things in life and then the struggles in life, but he doesn't stop there. He talks a lot about the one true God in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he does that to help you learn what is life about? How should you live? And that's a positive thing, isn't it? So the third frequently asked question about life is, what must you know from Ecclesiastes about God? Number one, God is the creator. God is the creator. He is essential to life. Who can eat or who can have enjoyment without God? God made human beings to live and work in this world. He made the earth for man to live on. He didn't make man for the earth. God made man and woman in his image. He has put eternity in their hearts. God is transcendent and infinite. He's in heaven, you're on earth. He is far above and far from us and infinite. He made Adam and Eve righteous. He's your creator and he gives people life. Everything in life exists because of whom? It exists because of God. Everything is not God. What have we learned over the years? There is God and what? Everything else. And how did that everything else come to be? Because God created it. How did everything else, how does it continue? Because God sustains it. How can you understand this everything else from whose perspective? Only from the triune God's perspective. The very fact that you live and breathe, that you can think, act, love, and worship. It's because God made you in his image. There is life because of God. And life without God doesn't exist. A second truth about God, he is sovereign. He is sovereign. God's sovereign plan is comprehensive and beautiful. He has made everything beautiful in its time. His person and plan are infinite. Whatever God does, it shall be forever. 
God's plan is perfect and complete. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God executes his plan so that people will fear him. God's eternal plan involves a season and time for everything. His actions cannot be reversed or changed. He sovereignly appoints all of life's events. His ways cannot be fully grasped. He sovereignly controls life, and he providentially causes life in this world to just keep on going. Life doesn't run on its own. Nothing just happens. There's no such thing as luck or chance. Random happenings without meaning or purpose. One of the great sanctifying events in my life was when I started becoming acquainted with this young lady named Trisha Price who would years later become Trisha Greenfield. Because when I was at their house, Trisha being the oldest and her five youngest siblings, I, in my unbelief, talked about how something happened and that was just lucky. And as soon as I said that, I had eight prices fall upon me with vigor. There's no such thing as luck. They had been that, that drilled in them that God is sovereign and that nothing just happens on its own. And I quickly repented. I mean, you have got a three-year-old telling you there's no such thing as luck. <laughs> Trisha wasn't three. It was her younger sister at the time. Because there's a God and you are not him, you can never fully comprehend God and all he does. Does this mean, well, you can't even know anything about God? I didn't say that. You can know God. You can know truth about God. But can you know everything about God exhaustively, perfectly, intimately? No. He's the creator. He's the infinite one. We are the created. We're limited. But everything, here's the point, everything in creation submits to God. Everything. And as the creature, your response to the sovereign God is to love him, submit to him, obey him, reverently, trustingly rely on him. Number three, a third truth about God Solomon teaches us here is that God is the judge. God is the judge. Because man sinned, God cursed the world, causing every aspect of human life to be difficult. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. God knows what you think and say. We're admonished. Do not let your heart utter anything hastily before God. God judges worship. He will bless unbelievers and judge unbelievers and judge everyone for how they have lived. Why do hard, difficult things happen? Review from earlier. Because of sin. Because we live in the world, which is human beings, which are billions of sinners together. And because you get all these different effects of sin together, and it creates hardship. And yet, and yet, God shows kindness with the sun and the rain and the necessary and even pleasant things. It does matter how you live under this point of God being the judge. It does matter how you live. 
You cannot have the attitude of, well, I'm just a complex multicellular organism higher up the evolutionary scale than cats. But when I die, that's the end of it. No, you are made in God's image to be like him, to love him, and to serve him. And so every person in creation will give an account to the Lord. Folks, this is a lot of truth about God. He's the creator. He's sovereign. He's the judge. This is a lot of truth. And given the many different aspects of life that it is impossible for us to ever put together, who has spoken to help you see its point and purpose? The infinite and perfect spirit in whom what? All things have their what? Their, their source. He's the one who gives it. Their support. For whom all things exist. The end. And so that brings us then to the fourth frequently asked question of life. Number four. How should you respond to the Lord and thus live life? We looked at this particularly last week. And so this will be hopefully very fresh in our minds. But you must fear this God. I underline that because who did we just consider? Our creator and sovereign and judge. Fear this God, the God who created life. You need to rely and depend on him alone. The God who directs life. Everything in creation submits to God. You must also. The God who will judge life. And if you haven't repented of your sin, you must repent and turn to him. Number two, you must obey this God in this life. When? Remember the different things that go on in life, number one? Obey this God in your everyday routines. Obey this God in the good and pleasant times. Obey this God in the difficult times. It's that third one that we have a human tendency to say, I'm going to push pause on God because I have to deal with this problem. But really, that's not only in the third one. It can also be in the second one, can't it? Things are going great. I really don't need God. We never say that. But our life shows it. Or even in the first one, day-to-day -day routine, nothing special. I don't need God's help. I got this God. When you're dealing with all kinds of people, you love this God with those kinds of people. And in the last part, with death, on your last days, on your deathbed, you must serve this God in that circumstance. There's no cherry picking. No cherry. You don't pick and choose what part of God you want to believe or what command of God you want to obey. It's all the time in every circumstance, in every situation. Number three is a definition of the fear of the Lord that I've used and given a lot over the last few years. I'm going to add a little aspect to help us get a bit more and so that your blanks here. The fear of the Lord is a reverence and to clarify that awe-filled, A-W-E, awe-filled faith. The fear of the Lord is a reverent awe 
filled faith in Jesus Christ, exclusively loving, obeying, and worshiping the one you will give an account to. What will happen when you have a reverent, awe-filled faith of Jesus Christ? I found this helpful for myself because in our easy believism kind of day, when just trust Jesus kind of thing, where's the awe in that? Where's the reverence of the one who sits in the heavens and that will come as our judge, the one who is sovereign and the creator? When you have this kind of reverent, awe-filled faith, you will have a right view of life. You will glorify God because you know that's why I'm alive. And you see every aspect of your life and every event in life for that purpose. The fifth and last frequently asked question, Ecclesiastes, is this. When you have a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, how should your life reflect that? Well, I'm going to walk through these not in order of priority, but the order in which they occur in the book, because I want us to look at these passages here. So number one from chapter two, you must humbly seek wisdom from God. You must humbly seek wisdom from God. Solomon says in chapter two and verse 13, I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. And that word excels is the word I mentioned earlier. What profit or advantage? Wisdom is better than folly and foolishness. In verse 26, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who's good in his sight. I'll just stop there. Remember what wisdom is? It's that correct and skillful application of truth to everyday life. God has given us truth. You study it, you learn it. But how do you put this into practice in your life? Skillfully. Remember my illustration of wisdom? Me and a chainsaw. Scary thought. I have a chainsaw, use it rarely. But not like some of our men here who can jump around on logs with a chainsaw running and cutting off everything safely. I would be dismembered if I did that. I lack the skill. God gives this. And so number one, humbly seek the wisdom from God so that you will live with the fear of the Lord in every aspect of life. Number two, chapter three, enjoy God's good gifts. Chapter three. Enjoy God's good gifts. Chapter 3, verse 12. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. In chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. Chapter 5, verse 18. Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him. It is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joys of his heart. In other words, God gives that contentment there. God created these things, folks. 
so that you will receive it with thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for this. Thank you, Lord, for it. And so that you will enjoy it as a gift from him. Number three, fellowship with Christ's church. Fellowship with Christ's church. Back to chapter four. Now, you all know, you will not find the church in the book of Ecclesiastes. We are taking this truth and we are trying to skillfully apply it to our day and age. Solomon, back then, he had the temple, he had the priests, he had the sacrifices. Different day and age now, different truth that we're under. But we need to apply it. Solomon says this in chapter 4, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. If they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who's alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? The one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Christ's church is a body of immersed believers who have covenanted together to love Christ to learn from him, to labor for him. And an essential part of our being Christ's church is rejoicing when others rejoice. And what else? Weeping when others weep. And when you have something you rejoice about, you don't go to your closet and rejoice with yourself. You tell others about that. The same thing with our struggles. You need to fellowship with Christ's church. Number four, don't be too shocked at life's tragedies and difficulties. They will shock us, but chapter five or eight, we need to remember we live in a sin-cursed world dominated by unbelievers under Satan's influence. Chapter five, verse eight, if you see the oppression of the poor, and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter. Don't be shocked. Don't be amazed. Don't be surprised. For high official watches over high official, and higher officials are over them. What? Corruption in government? I don't believe it. How could this be? Not in our country. I mean, it's a sin-cursed world, isn't it? Full of unbelievers. And so don't be too shocked. Number five, work hard. Work hard. Chapter 9, verse 10. This is one of my favorite passages, favorite statements from the book of Ecclesiastes. A good challenge. Write it on your, uh, keep it in your, always before you. Chapter 9, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. You are alive for a reason, Christian. You are alive for a reason. Get to it. Serve the Lord. Be faithful. Work hard. Last, number six. Chapter 12, verses 9 to 12. Continually soak in Scripture. Continually soak in Scripture. We saw this two weeks ago how Solomon said that uh, he wrote these words and that the words of the wise, chapter 12, verse 11, are like goads. They spur us on to how we should live. 
They're, the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd to the Lord. And then in verse 12, he's not saying don't have lots of books. He's saying be careful what you read. Give attention to Scripture there. Wrapping things up. When you do not fear the Lord... When you do not feel the Lord, you will live for something else. Someone else. You're going to have something in creation be your God then. And when you do that, it will disappoint every time. It might make you feel good right now. Possibly for some months or years. But eventually, it will disappoint. It will distract you derail you from the triune God. You will waste your life. You will die in your sins. And in eternity, you will be forgotten by everyone else except. You will be forgotten by everyone else except the Lord Jesus Christ who renders his punishment on you in the lake of fire. You will have the full attention of a holy, righteous, wrathful God. And that is a fearful thing. But Ecclesiastes, Solomon gives us a positive message. At the bottom of your sheet here, a summary one statement of the book. Though people cannot make sense of life in this fallen world, when you fear the Lord, you can and you should wisely enjoy life. Fear the Lord. Love him. Obey him. Worship him. Have a reverent, awe-filled faith in Christ. Let's pray.